You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Happy Friday! It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on ESPN Woo! Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Fitz, it's an extra good Friday for me because yours truly only has about a day and a half of work next week before I'm on vacation and not working, so this feels like a real good Friday and we got a little bit of a guest palooza going today. We got a lot of folks coming on to our show to talk about a bunch of stuff. This be a good Friday. I, well, look, hey, I love guest palooza. We're going to just lean right into it, get all sorts of expertise tonight. Also, bags packed. I'm still waiting for the address of where we're going on vacation. Oh, so yeah. I, get, I, mean, I, I mean, will get the itinerary to you uh, yes. the day after Two's Never. Is when that sounds. That's. I'll, I'll look forward to it. I'm, I'm putting it, putting that in Outlook now. That, that, that I've seen the kind of shorts you wear, <laughs> and they will be nowhere near me. And if anyone wants to see them, I can almost guarantee you one of our loyal listeners will have that gif up in mere moments on look, social Mom, media. No tan lines. Oh, go Check ahead. Check the menchies <laughs> on the little bird legs over there. Uh, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guest join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Uh, as I mentioned, you can follow us at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz, at Spain and Fitz. And you can always subscribe to the podcast on the ESPN app, Apple, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we will have Guest Palooza coming up, but a couple things we wanted to get to right off the top beforehand. Um, I was on Around the Horn today, and of course I won. Did you it win? It wasn't, wasn't rigged today, so okay, I won. Okay, good. Didn't want to um, have to hit reality. And just practically crying about Bob Ryan, uh, no minutes restriction, Ken Burns-style documentary on the history of the three-pointer in his answer to what the hell happened at the end of the Nuggets game last night. And if you guys did not actually see this, you're going to need to watch the clip to fully understand just how things went wrong down the stretch. They fall to the Wizards, who are on an inexplicable winning streak. Uh, but they've got essentially a 4-1 and one in the closing seconds, and three guys fan out to the perimeter to shoot the game-winning three. No one goes in the lane. Wide open twos for the taking. No one takes them. And this is what Bob Ryan had to say about it all on Around the Horn. Three-point shot was the brainchild of a promoter, Abe Saperstein. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Globetrotters guy, who put it in his American Basketball League in 1961. <laughs> was picked up by the Eastern League in 62, was picked up by the ABA in 66, was picked up by the NBA in 79, was picked up by the colleges in 86. It is the worst thing to happen to basketball in my lifetime. It has infested the game. It has distorted the game at every level. And we have generations now, plural, of players who have grown up knowing nothing else. They've been, uh, they've been instructed how to play a game in a backwards way. And you saw last night the culmination of this abomination known as the three in which Michael Woo! Porter Jr. did not have the good sense because he has known nothing else his whole life. He's been instructed what to do, not to go to the basket for an unmolested dunk or a two to tie the game and get him an overtime and Washington <laughs> would have no time left to retaliate. But he stands and lurks in the corner and the other guy in the wing and and this is wow. this is it. This is the more of the Daryl morification of basketball at its worst. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> okay, Fitz. So enough people have dunked on the Nuggets for their terrible final play. But are you willing and ready to dunk on Bob Ryan for saying this is the fault of the evolution of the three as a part of the game? You know what? This is the most well thought out, well researched bad take I've heard in a long time. And I gotta give Bob <laughs> credit for that. And, and look, I'm just wondering too, like, are there special chairs that they made? for him to say get off my lawn on like wow. it's just it feels like he's just sitting out there and he's saying all oh, you guys get off my lawn 
the NBA shouldn't be played this way. Look, I love the three, by the way. I'm all in for it. And I think the Warriors played exciting basketball that proved it for a very long time. Last night was just a boneheaded moment where a bunch of guys stood around the arc waiting for their opportunity to win the game instead of just taking the easy bucket and the tie. It felt like you were watching the game. Like if you were in the gym, everybody would scream, no, 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 unless the shot went in. If the shot had gone in, <laughs> if they had won the game, it would have been all over SportsCenter with how great it was and no, nobody would be critiquing it. That being said... They didn't win the game. They lost the game, and they missed an easy opportunity. So, you know, good on Bob, though. It's well thought out. Bad take. An expertly given hot take. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, you could shoot the three for the win instead of forcing overtime if that's the best shot, if that's the shot they're giving you, right? If they're giving you a wide-open lane with a four-on-one, you take the two, you force it to overtime, especially when it wasn't a particularly good shot. It wasn't Steph Curry sitting outside. There was no one there for the tip-in. No one filled the lane. It also made it easier to defend. Just a, a massive failure in general. But I love that Bob uh, goes to the root of if his of whenever he has a chance to return to the argument against the three existing at all is uh, is his go-to. It's Spain Sarah, also, you make a good point about nobody there for the tipping. Can we also acknowledge like the one thing that you learn when you're a little kid, the first time you ever play basketball, follow your shot, right? Like right. nobody yeah. followed a shot. No. They all just stood there and they just watched the, it. I mean, that was, pass it was, it was, was a thing of beauty. Stopping his dribble was bad. Where they went was <laughs> bad. It was all bad. Uh, NBA is on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night as uh, the Nets host Luca and the Mavs Presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 8 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. Speaking of the Nets, quickly, eight in a row. Most of those without Kevin Durant. He is now confirmed to be out until after the All-Star break. Um, Mina Kimes is now taking credit for this. Ever since she jumped on the Nets bandwagon, they're undefeated. Uh, Does this change anything you felt about this team, either when they were constructed or um, recently? I think for me, I, I still look back to when Harden came over and I thought there'd be difficulty and there hasn't been. They've made it look easy and it's a little reminiscent of what happened last year with the Lakers gelling together so quickly and so efficiently and that's where they are. Now I know KD hasn't been in, but that's going to be only an opportunity to improve. I mean, at, at this point, the Nets are running away with the East and, and I'm just starting to get more and more excited about what we'll eventually get in the finals between the Lakers and the Nets because that's where it looks wow. like we're headed. I mean, they're very mm-hmm. dominant teams. Yeah, I don't disagree with you that it feels like that's the the inevitable uh, uh, crash course is going to be Lakers-Nets, but worth seeing what teams do at the trade deadline and certainly worth seeing how they might fare in a full series defensively against teams that are built to try to beat them and, and built to win. So we'll get into more Nets and we'll get into lots more NBA, but coming up as the Lakers keep losing and the Celtics keep losing, the Jazz keeps winning, and we don't think enough people are talking about it, so we're bringing in an expert to do just that. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. It's a Friday. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. And joining us now, Andy Larson of the Salt Lake Tribune. Andy, thanks for the time. Feels like all week, all we've talked about, Lakers taking L, Celtics taking L, who's struggling, who's sucking. Everyone's giving a little love to the Jazz, but I don't think we're talking enough about this team. Does it feel like people in Utah are fired up, or are they kind of feeding off the national media, not giving them enough love? Yeah, you know, there is that uh, complex a little bit here in Utah, right, where we're worried about how much national attention the Jazz are getting. But for sure, you know, I, I think it's as excited people have been about the Jazz since really the Stockton and Malone days. I mean, we haven't seen them play like this in the regular season since then. And, you know, with the only two losses at home and 
some of these wins above the above 500 teams. I mean, the Jazz are 13 and four right now above 500 teams. It, it feels like this team is is real, and I think so locally at least. Yeah, they're they're absolutely getting kind of the love that their their place in the standings would show. The hard part for me, Andy, is it feels like no matter what they do, everybody's going to say, doesn't matter till I see it in the playoffs, which we can't see until we get to the playoffs. So, like, what's an appropriate balance here between appreciating what's happening today and also acknowledging that this isn't the playoffs yet? Yeah, I think what you just said is, like, you know, you, you can only beat the opponents that are in front of you, right? And, and so when you play the Lakers, and yes, they're without Anthony Davis, you have to go out and win that game and win it by a lot. And And – you know, if, if the Jazz had only won that game by a few points or, you know, even let LeBron kind of take over and, and lose that contest, it wouldn't have been necessarily a shock, but it would have been a, a way, you know, Lakers fans and, and kind of the, the NBA uh, conversation sphere could have just been like, you know, hey, the, the Lakers with Anthony Davis and Dennis Schroeder are just going to are going to kick the team in the playoffs, you know. And, and so I think they've done what they need to do in terms of saying, hey, you know, we're we're legit. We're for real. We're, we're playing as well as can be. And, and then, yeah, I, I think what will happen is, it, you know, we'll continue to hear kind of these uh, doubters until until the playoffs come. And, and that's kind of when the Jazz will have to put up or shut up a little bit. But, you know, until then, I, I don't think there's any uh, problem with just kind of taking it as a, a, a joyful team that's doing – uh, some pretty remarkable things for, for what they can accomplish now during the regular season. It's Sarah Spain and Jason Fitz. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio uh, talking to Andy Larson about the uh, the uh, resplendent, I guess is a word for it, jazz. Um, <laughs> offensively top five, defensively top five, tremendous three-point shooting. This is a team that looks like they could thrive in the postseason because of how effectively they play basketball, because of the depth of offensive weapons. But what it always ends up feeling like is who's got the biggest stars, and that's how the scheming comes in the postseason. Who's got the biggest stars, and that's where I think there's doubts around the Jazz. Do you see this as a team where the style of play and what they do to find success in the regular season does translate to seven-game series? You know, it's it's a good question, and I, I think it's fair to ask. You know, we we have seen kind of team as the star teams win before. You know, if without necessarily a top five guy. I mean, look, Jimmy Butler dragged the Miami Heat to the finals last year. Right. You know, obviously, kind of the o three o four Pistons are a comparison, uh, and, and even that 2014 Spurs team, even though it had Tim Duncan, which who was you know one of the top ten players of all time. Uh, you know, I don't know that Tim was at his peak then. And, and so, it, again, was kind of another model for this uh, team-first style of play. I would also say that, you know, there's just a chance that we're seeing a leap right now from Donovan Mitchell. And, you know, it's his fourth season in the NBA. And, yes, he hasn't been one of the NBA's super-duper stars to this point. But, you know, neither was Dwayne Wade. By, by the time uh, Dwayne Wade won the finals, then, you know, that's kind of when he made his place and made his name in the NBA. You know, so... It, it, to some extent, it, it, this uh, the star level of the team will be determined by the playoffs. And, you know, certainly they don't have a, a Kawhi Leonard or a LeBron James or an Anthony Davis. You know, they, they don't have anyone who's made their resume at that level so far. But that doesn't mean that they can't then maybe uh, later on, you know, when the playoffs do come roll around. We're talking to Andy Larson from the Salt Lake Tribune on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So, uh, we're talking about a team that's absolutely dominant so far this year. So I feel dumb asking this question, but it's what everybody's mm-hmm. thinking at this point. 
What do they need to do with the trade deadline? Is there somebody they can bring in that you think actually bolsters their ability to win in the playoffs? You know, you, you look at the roster, and maybe the one weakness is kind of defensive length, someone who could theoretically match up one-on-one against the LeBrons and the Kawhis of the world. And, of course, you're not going to stop those guys, but there's a big difference between if LeBron has a 13 for 20 night and a 13 for 25 night. You know, you just want to make it as difficult as you can. And I, I think the Jazz, you know, they have Royce O'Neal, who is a tremendous defender, and he, he is very good, but he's only 6'4". And so you wonder, you know, do you have the, the defensive length beyond center in order to kind of to stop those elite wings when, when the time comes? And so maybe that would be the only place on the, on the roster where you're like, yep, the Jazz definitely could maybe use an upgrade there in, in, in playoffs. But it is a really good eight man rotation that the jazz have that you know it's it's not necessarily you're you're going to go out and get a buyout candidate who's going to necessarily play right away it's kind of those contingency players someone you know someone who might be able to help against a a particular matchup and and uh you know quite frankly the jazz don't have a lot of trade assets either this is the team they put together using those assets and and so well you know i don't think they're going to change significantly between now and the playoffs but if there is that one thing, that would be it, is a long wing defender to guard to deal with the stars of the league. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking about the Jazz, and most of the conversation has been really positive about their incredible play this season. But cut in the midst of that was an accusation from former Jazz player Elijah Millsap claiming that Utah's executive vice president and former GM Dennis Lindsay made a racist remark to him during his exit interview in, in 2015. I don't know if we need to get into that specific exchange, more so big picture. And I know you retweeted a story by David Aldridge on this. Those kind of recording questions for black players in 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 the jazz um, franchise and their relationships with the fans and everything else. Does this still seem like a pretty big sticking point for those who exist within the team and those having to consider it in free agency? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a fair criticism. You know, it's it's a... It's something that I think Utah will have questions about until kind of the diversity improves. And, and we, we stop having kind of these instances like with the Russell Westbrook uh, fan instance, incident in, you know, two years ago. And I, I think it's, you know, it, it's funny. Elijah said, you know, I, I don't think Dennis Lindsay is a racist person. And it, David Aldridge's article talked, you know, to, to Derek Favors and Mike Conley guys who, you know, obviously black athletes in Utah who have had really good experiences. But David's right that there have been some that, that never really fit in in Utah um, because they felt like something was lacking here, you know, because of that lack of, you know, racial diversity. It's about 2.5% of Utah's population is black. And, and, and so I, I think it is kind of an ongoing conversation that, I, that the Jazz can be at the forefront of. And, you know, I, I think it's kind of an exciting opportunity from a, a local's point of view to say, you know, actually the jazz can lead out on this diversity issue and they can say, Hey, you know, what can we do in order to bring more, uh, more athletes and, and more executives and, you know, quite frankly, change the way Utah operates. And so, you know, like right now we have only one black state legislature uh, legislator. Can we, you know, get more uh, voices of color in the conversation? And I think, that's kind of what the Jazz as an organization have been focused on over the last 18 months. And, and really, since that Russell Westbrook fan incident was kind of a key uh, catalyst for that change. And, and we'll see what happens. But it is certainly something to kind of con- consider and see if we can improve on in our local community. 
Uh, before we let you go, Andy, and Andy Larst of the Salt Lake Tribune is here with us from Spain and Fitz. I have to ask for your uh, comment on the record, your response on the record to Vernon Maxwell, who today tweeted out, it's understandable <laughs> to brag and celebrate having the best record in February when your franchise's biggest accomplishment is food poisoning MJ. Uh, thoughts? <laughs> Any thoughts? Uh, the the ongoing battle between Maxwell and Utah is legendary. Uh, I, you know, I, there have been some less classy jazz fans out there that have pointed to some of Vernon's off-the-court incidents. Uh, it's gotten nasty at times here. I, I don't have a whole lot to say other than Utah is actually a pretty great place in the end once it comes down to it. <laughs> and, and we usually won't poison your pizza, but maybe double-check just and in we, case. You know, unless it's the NBA Finals yeah, and you're the on the key. other team. The don't, o- don't order pizza in Utah. That's the real key here. I mean, don't, we all know don't, that. Don't order pizza in Utah. Andy, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Hope you continue to enjoy the season. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, guys. Man, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because I was actually just on a on – you know our buddy Raheel Ramzanali, who we have had a couple times on to talk about Houston. I went on his uh, TV podcast show, and he he you know was asking me – does, does the national media dislike Houston as a sports town? And I said, I really think that's an internal thing. Like, I don't I don't think I get that vibe at all. But I do feel like there's a lot of sort of, eh, about Utah in general, about the Jazz. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're great, but, like, we immediately jump to, can they do it in the playoffs, in ways that we don't do with teams in bigger markets. No, I don't think you're wrong about that, and I think part of that has to do with just – the fact that when you've got a team that's built around somebody like Donovan Mitchell that uh, we think is going to be spectacular, going to be an epic player, it's still got to happen, right? And so right. proof of concept matters more than ever in the NBA. And it, it doesn't make it right. It's just where everybody's mind goes to, and there's nothing they can do about it until they get to the playoffs. And it matters especially for teams that don't have a history of, of doing it and, and that we don't give yeah. that benefit of the doubt to. Uh, NBA's on ESPN Radio. Tune in Sunday as Giannis and the Bucks host Kawhi and the Clippers, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 3 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Coming up, it's hard to believe, but Selection Sunday is just over two weeks away, and we're getting teams that were not in the conversation now looking like tourney locks, and we suddenly have conversation at the top four not just a top two in men's college basketball but a top three are you ready to put michigan up there with gonzaga and baylor we'll talk to our next guest about that and msu coming on strong late it's all coming up next spain and fitz espn radio spain and fitz the podcast spain and fitz on espn radio the espn app sirius xm channel 80 sarah spain jason fitz Tune in tomorrow for college basketball action. UNC hosts Florida State. Coverage begins at 3.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And if you're up bright and early, you can feel free to hang out with me and Christine Williamson on Countdown to Game Day digitally in the ESPN app, Twitter, all over the place. Wherever you get your uh, uh, ESPN digital from, we're there from 10.30 a.m. to 11 getting you ready for game day. Now, Sarah, this is a confusing college basketball season. So as part of Guestapalooza tonight, I think mm-hmm. we need help. Let's uh, let's head over to the Goodyear Hotline. Gary Parrish from CBSSports.com joins us. One of my favorites and one of the best minds in college basketball. And Gary, I, I need your help because I'm trying to figure out in a world where it feels like suddenly every name brand team isn't any good and random teams are. Is this good for college basketball, the lack of predictability in your mind this year? As an employee of CBS Sports, I can tell you uh, from uh, the network's perspective, you would rather have 
a Kentucky guaranteed to be in the field, a Duke guaranteed to be in the field, a North Carolina guaranteed to be in the field, a Michigan State guaranteed to be in the field. The, the, the big brands are what registers on television. So um, I, I'm sure that somebody could make an argument that it's, quote, good for the sport. But from a television ratings perspective, more people are interested when the, when the recognizable teams and programs are, are major factors. And that just has not been the case for much of this season. Gary, I'd like to apologize for my watchdog. It actually, it, it barks whenever <laughs> someone tries to promote another outlet. So if we could just keep, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm if sorry. we could just oh, keep Fletch. CBS Sports out of it. Uh, Spain and Fletch over here, he's a, he's a stickler. Um, okay, let's talk about Michigan because obviously Michigan, a big name, um, but very deserving. Not one that gets in to the tournament because of a coach or because of being a blue blood, but because of the play. Are they good enough, though, for them to be alongside Gonzaga and Baylor as the best, or do you put them as a solid three? I put them as a solid right behind Gonzaga with Baylor. Um, the, the truth is, if you look at a lot of the computer stuff, Gonzaga is still separated from the pack. Now, if you wanted to argue there's a clear top three, I'll accept that. But most of the metrics show there's a clear top one, and then there's a clear two and three in some order. And that, that absolutely includes Michigan along with Baylor. And then after that, there's a drop-off. Like if we were trying to seed the NCAA tournament today, Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan would be number one seeds in literally every bracket that exists in the world. And then we would have disagreements over the fourth number one seed. Some people would make a case for Ohio State, some for Illinois, some for Florida State, maybe Alabama. But, but it is true that Gonzaga, Michigan, and Baylor are, are, are undeniable number ones, and Michigan has turned into one of the great stories in college basketball. I mean, the history of former NBA players returning to their alma maters to coach the basketball team has not really had too many great examples. Um, you know, Chris Mullen is an obvious not great situation. Patrick Ewing right now is struggling at Georgetown. Penny Hardaway, I think, is to be determined. Uh, but Jawan Howard has been a smashing success. The idea that you could lose one of the great coaches in the sport like John Beeline, replace him with a first-time head coach, and maybe improve your program to this extent is not something I expected. And I say that as somebody who thought it was smart to hire Jawan Howard when they hired him. Michigan is legit. And they're no longer just a Final Four contender. Absolutely, they are a threat to Gonzaga and anybody else. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Gary Parrish from CBSSports.com about all things NCAA basketball. And you just mentioned the success or lack thereof for, you know, Penny at Memphis and other coaches that are former players there. What has Jawan Howard been doing that has made it so successful for him at Michigan? I think that's, that's a great question um, because I, I do think there's some things you can identify. First and foremost, um, with all due respect to, to Penny Hardaway, you know, he was a, a high school coach coaching against other high school coaches before he got the Memphis job. That's vastly different than sitting on a bench with Eric Spolstra and being in meetings with Eric Spolstra. You know, Juwan Howard spent years working with and learning from a future Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame basketball coach. So I think it starts there. And then when Juwan put his staff together, he was very specific and, and smart about it. He went out and he he kept somebody who was already on staff, uh, an assistant who had relationships with the players, already had relationships with local high school coaches, local grassroots coaches, local recruits, so that you could not have to start from scratch on that front. Then he hired somebody who had an NBA background, 
who had been an assistant coach in the NBA, because at this point, everybody wants somebody with an NBA background on a college staff. And then he went out and added, as his associate head coach, a longtime former successful head coach at the collegiate level, Phil Martelli, who, of course, did tremendous things at St. Joe's. So Jawan surrounded himself with people who could maybe make up for just some of the inexperience that, that he brought to the job and could help him uh, navigate through some waters that might be difficult. And then he inherited a good situation from John Beeline, but again, you could argue he, he's made it better. So I, I just think more than anything, we've got a, a, a uniquely gifted coach who surrounded himself with the perfect staff to, to help him get through whatever things he might need to get through. And right now, if you're Michigan, you could not be more pleased with how it's going because not only does he have a team that was good last season, is going to be a one-season tournament this season, he's also got the number one recruiting class in America set to enroll in advance the next season. So this thing doesn't appear to be stopping anytime soon. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, as we get ready for Selection Sunday. In just a couple weeks, we're talking to CBSSports.com, Gary Parrish. Oh, good. The, uh, the watchdog was silent on that one. Let's get to <laughs> Michigan State. They started out not even on the bubble last week, beating two top five teams in three days. Is that enough, plus Izzo, to get a right now 13-9 and nine Spartans team in the tournament? It's really close, uh, but, you know, um, different va- bracketologists would have them in slightly different places some in the bracket as of this moment, some just outside of the bracket as of this moment. What everybody can agree on is that Michigan State has basically gone from we don't give them a realistic chance to they can probably do this. Now, the rest of the remaining schedule is difficult. They've got two games with Michigan. We've already discussed how challenging that can be. Uh, They've got a game at Maryland and a home game against Indiana. But I really do think there, if Michigan State, can split next week's games, the, the four games it has, and then just not pick a bad loss in the Big Ten. Just make tournament. Just make sure when you lose, you lose to somebody like Ohio State or Illinois or Michigan. Right. If you lose at all, I think that's probably going to be good enough, which is remarkable given where this team was you know, just a few weeks ago. Like They weren't even on the bubble. But now, because of three straight quad one wins, including the victory, as you mentioned, of two top five teams, Illinois and Ohio State, uh, Tom Izzo's given himself a chance to go to the NCAA tournament for the 23rd consecutive time. It is one of, um, in recent history, one of the more surprising turnarounds that we've seen. Gary, does a team like Michigan State that lost a bunch of important players and then came into a COVID-19 year deserve a little bit more benefit of the doubt because of how strange this year has been? I, I do think the point you're making is, is valid, that, that the pandemic has has undeniably impacted this college basketball season. And I don't mean just with, you know, interruptions and pauses and cancel games and rescheduled games and all that. I mean, if you looked at Kentucky and Duke, which are two of the biggest brands in the sport, and the two brands that rely most heavily on first-year players annually, I refuse to believe that it's just a coincidence that they have both struggled to this degree in the exact same year when they almost never struggle independently. Like, so the question becomes, what's different? Well, here's what's different. The freshmen did not get on campus at the same time in the year that they normally would. When they did get on campus, they couldn't hang out together. You're like, yeah, how do you get to know each other if you can't hang out with each other? It's not just about getting in individual work 
in the offseason, which is basically what they were limited to. Like, it's going to have dinner together. It's playing pickup, you know, 8, eight o'clock at night inside Cameron Indoor when the coaches aren't even around. They missed out on all of that. And then they had interruptions and pauses and restarts. And then they didn't get the normal exhibitions they would get. They didn't get the normal buy games where they just overwhelm competition while building chemistry and, 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 and camaraderie. And so, you know, if you look at the top of the sport right now, it's, it's, it's Gonzaga, it's Baylor, it's Michigan, it's Illinois, it's Villanova. It's all teams that are relying on non-freshmen for the most part who were in the program pre-pandemic. With Kentucky and Duke, it's teams that are relying heavily on first-year players who were not in the program pre-pandemic. And so you look at Michigan State to bring them back into this conversation. They lost two NBA players off of the team, and they did not enroll anybody that could, you know, help them take that next step. They basically needed role players from last season to become their stars this season. And it might be happening right now, but it undeniably wasn't happening early in the season. And I do think the pandemic probably played a role in that. Yeah, I don't envy. You can follow them on Twitter. Yeah, I was just going to say, Chris, I don't envy their decision-making the same way I didn't envy it for the college football playoff system because it's either a total mess and you say we have no metrics or you try to find metrics, and that's really tough right now. Um, But appreciate your insight, Gary. certainly helps us figure out what decisions they're going to be making. You guys are awesome to have me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Follow him on Twitter at Gary Parrish CBS. Check him out on CBSSports.com. All right, coming up, what did we miss? That's right. We'd like to get you caught up on all things that we weren't paying attention to, including an Olympic update, Spain and Fitz. That's next, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at SiriusXM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Everybody's been paying so much attention to football for the last several months. We'd like to get everybody caught up. In the way only we can, we do a little What Did I Miss? Where we go in and we uh, get an expert to come on and tell us what I missed. See, that's clever clever naming by us. So let's do a little What Did I Miss now, and we'll do it Olympic style. And to do that, we're joined by Washington Post Rick Mace. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for the time, man. First of all, are we going to have the Olympics this summer? Oh, I think so. I think there's a, you know plenty of skepticism and, and reason to worry, but I'm finding that most of that skepticism is coming from kind of outside of the people that actually make the decisions. So I think the people that are going to be pulling the strings, uh, they're, they're highly motivated. And there's a lot of money on the line. And I think they're really counting on the, the pandemic kind of turning a corner. So um, I feel like things are pointed in, in, a right, in the right direction. And when you talk to people in uh, Tokyo or the IOC, um, you know, they're pretty determined right now. So we're, we're kind of planning on the, these Olympics happening. Might, might, look, and, might look, look a little different, feel a little different. But um, I suspect we're, you know, it'll still take up a, a huge chunk of time in July and August. Fitz, I realize it's an exciting Friday, but I can't believe you started the segment without the music. I wasn't sure they had the music ready, so I didn't want to put them on the spot. So what did I miss? Ye of little faith, What miss. did I miss? Ye of little faith. The answer is I now. missed the call for the music, so it's the all call on for the music. Uh, Rick Mace with us from the Washington Post. You wrote a story just a couple days ago, everything you need to know about the Tokyo Olympics, so directing people there who want the minutia. But let's get into some of... The biggest questions, there have been a lot about will there be mandatory vaccinations or, or quarantines or, or testing every day. What's the latest on all those precautions? Yeah, so the, the Tokyo organizers are kind of slow rolling out some of the details of how, how everything is going to work. Um, but they're finally kind of uh, letting it trickle out a little bit. Um, what we do know so far is they will not be requiring vaccines of any athletes, any 
any people that, that attend the games at all. Um, and even if you have a vaccine, you're still going to be subject to a lot of restrictions and, and protocols. So they're, they're kind of issuing these playbooks that they want athletes to follow. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot of familiar things that, that we all kind of experience or are familiar with now, social distancing, wearing masks, there'd be temperature checks. Um, but there's a little bit, a little bit more detailed where, you know, athletes aren't going to be in the Olympic village for two and a half weeks. They're going to kind of be there for the duration of their competition and they're going to be put on a, on a plane to go home. So they're trying to limit, uh, you know, the face-to-face contact that everyone's going to have with each other. And they still haven't decided if there's any spectators. Uh, we're expecting that to come, um, you know, maybe in the next, the next few weeks. Um, Japan, they're, they're just now rolling out their vaccine. It hasn't, hasn't gone great. Uh, not that it's gone great, you know, anywhere. Um, but I think there's a, there's some big expectations to kind of see how the vaccine rollout goes and really just gauging the comfort of both the, the Japanese government and the people. A lot of polling showed that people aren't thrilled about these Olympics taking place there. So they're, they're still looking to, to reassure, um, you know, everyone in Tokyo that they can pull this thing off safely. We're talking to Rick Mace from the Washington Post about all things Olympics, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And Rick, you just mentioned the people of Tokyo, I, I guess, when you look at how many different nations are involved, how difficult is it to get everybody on one page on how this should be handled? Yeah, it's going to be tough. And, you know, we're all hoping that, you know, much of the world is vaccinated come summertime. Um, but clearly some people are not going to be in. And some nations are going to have better access to, to vaccine uh, and some aren't. And obviously a lot of athletes uh, or people in general are not are going to be resisting uh, the vaccine. So the, the biggest hope is that people will follow the other protocols and, and be safe, uh, wear, wear masks. And, and follow, you know, proper hygiene. Um, and, you know, they're, they're hoping they can pull this thing off. I mean, I think they realize there's going to be some cases and they have a lot of contingency plans uh, ready to go. Um, but they're hoping they can limit contact them as much as possible. They can, they can you know, quell any kind of uh, potential outbreak from happening. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're catching up on the things we weren't paying enough attention to while we focused a lot on the NFL and the Super Bowl. And Rick Mace of the Washington Post with us to talk Olympics. There's the pandemic. There's the delay. There's everything else. And now there's the temperature. Talk to me about that concern that people have heading into these games. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, you know, Jap- Japan is, is super hot, it turns out, in the summertime. Uh, <laughs> if you go back to the last time Who the Olympics knew? were there... Um, <laughs> <laughs> going back, you know, 50 years now, the, the Olympics were actually held, uh, you know, in, in I, I believe in the fall, if, if I'm remembering that right. And it's just because, you know, July and August is friggin' hot there. It's like 90, 90 plus degrees. Um, so this has been a concern ever since Tokyo has awarded the games. Um, and, and teams have been planning for it. They've been, um, you know, figuring out, you know, how to, how to train in the heat. How are you going to manage the heat? What to do if uh, athletes become overheated? Um, now, I will say that, you know, these, these games were supposed to take place last summer. And the temperatures during the originally scheduled dates, they weren't too bad. You know, they were humid. Um, they really didn't hit, um, you know, 88, 89 degrees until the last couple of days of, of the scheduled competition. So if they somehow get those temperatures again this summer, um, you know, I think everyone's going to be pretty pleased with that. But on the other end, you know, if, if it's crazy hot, any outdoor sporting event, um, anything involving, you know, endurance, soccer, marathon, race walking, a lot of the track and field events, um, you know, there's going to be a huge concern about uh, athletes overheating, not, not you know, properly uh, hydrating. So there will be a lot of eyes on that. And hopefully, you know, countries are, are aware of this and are preparing, you know, accordingly. Rick, what athletes do you think are the most impacted by having to take this year and wait for the Olympics? Well, I mean, it's really athletes that should have been in their prime last year. And, you know, that, that's going to mean different things to, <laughs> to, 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 <laughs> to different sports. So, you know, there, there's some athletes that are maybe on the, the upper end that maybe were on the borderline of even making the games. And I'm thinking of people like, um, I don't know, Lolo Jones, a 
a hurdler that you might remember from from 2008 mm-hmm. uh, Beijing Olympics. Um, people along those lines, but there's other people that, that you, we know. We remember, you know, Katie Ledecky from from you know the past couple Olympic cycles. Um, it's possible that she might have been able to peak last year, and maybe a whole year off, um, you know, changes changes things for her. Um, but the other end, you know, there were athletes that maybe weren't ready a year ago. Um, you know, teenagers. There's a swimmer from from the Washington D.C. area named Tori Huskis that two national high school records last night. So she's someone that maybe would have been fighting for a spot on the team last year, and a, a year later, she's got a year of training. Her 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 body's uh, you know matured. She's got more strength. And she could be, you know, an actual force, you know, in, in Tokyo next year. So there's two ends of the spectrum. And, you know, one year in, in Olympic terms is, is a long time. And it's people like, uh, you know, that maybe we're considering or thinking they'd be retired this time. And I'm thinking of someone like Simone Biles, um, you know, has been forced to keep her body going and, and stay training for, for an extra 12 months in the hopes of, you know, finding the podium one last time. You can read Rick Mace's story in the Washington Post, everything you need for the Tokyo Olympics, and find out about a couple cool things you might not know, like some of the new Olympic sports, karate, skateboarding, BMX freestyle, uh, sport climbing, three-on-three basketball, surfing. Uh, There's all sorts of new stuff to pay attention to. We're kind of running out of time here, Rick, but um, do you think from our perspective watching from home, the Olympics will feel closer to normal than we might expect or pretty weird even from afar? I think if you're watching on TV, it's going to be pretty normal. I mean, right now I'm thinking if they're spectators, they might only be, um, you know, locals, Japanese residents. Um, So it's possible you're going to see crowds no matter what. But even if there aren't, the Olympics are going to feel like a made-for-TV event, and the cameras are going to focus on the athletes. They're going to tell those same kind of heartwarming stories that that pull at your heartstrings. Um, And and the competition is going to be the same, and it's going to be the, the best athletes in the world. Um, from you know 200 plus countries competing against each other and, and that's going to that's not going to be any different than any other year so I think if you're sitting on your couch at home you're going to have you know all the same reasons to tune in to cheer and, and to enjoy it and you know hopefully it, it all get pulled off safely and uh, you know we, we can all celebrate and enjoy it and uh, you know our worst fears don't come true yeah Rick thank you so much for your time and your expertise man we appreciate you joining us no problem anytime We're brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. We are just getting started. Coming up, did you hear that? It's the sound of another glass ceiling being shattered by a woman in sports. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The times are changing. Right now, it's women's sports, but hopefully this will expand and we will see the diversity represented at the fan level at the player level, at the staff level, somewhat of the coaching level, but certainly not in the executive and owner level of sports, so that we finally have diversity top to bottom. And the biggest news of the day that helps reinforce what we're seeing across the NWSL, now happening in the WNBA, by none other than a friend of the show, a glass-breaking, name-taking, butt-kicking, Senate flipping, jump shooting, Kelly Leffler booting lady, crush that, named Renee Montgomery, who just retired a couple weeks ago from the WNBA and walked right into the owner's office to be approved as part of a three-member ownership group taking over the Atlanta dream. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And Fitz, we had Renee on uh, this show, when it was Spain and Company during the pandemic, during the Wubble, opting out of the season, and she goes now from a two-time champion to owner 
an executive member of a team. It's incredible. Okay, a couple of things here. The fact that you went through all of that and didn't say a naughty word, I really thought we were going to get one. I know. I'm, and when you do those a, many rhymes in a row, <laughs> you know, when you when you do that, and you nailed it, by the way, but I needed, like, you were so, in the, and this is, I'm going to show my 80s wrestling again here. You were so Ric Flair in that moment. I it just was. needed a woo at the end of it. If I'm you, so sorry. There, there we go. Now I feel good. Uh, look, this is one of these moments where, again, the WNBA continues to be progressive. It continues uh, to sort of rep- reflect the people that play within the league. And it shows you that it's not just about the players having a voice. It's about the players having opportunity, right? I mean, that you look across this, and we've talked a little bit about, uh, you mentioned, I think it was yesterday, Dick Vermeil's comments about Deshaun Watson saying that he wants out. And, uh, you know, and Vermeil came back and said, well, if you want all these decisions, then own a team. It's not that simple in the NFL. Right. It's not that simple in any sports league. But for the WNBA to come in and really show a path for players that are so active, that have such a large voice, and that care so much about the growth of the sport, this is part of the change that we've seen in the WNBA over the last few years, where it feels like the players have become better represented. They've become a bigger part of the conversation about the league. They've become a bigger part of of the growth of the league, and now you find it at an ownership level. I mean, that just shows all the way top to bottom the level of incredible women and the opportunity that can be presented for them, not just as players, but from their future when they're done playing within the league. That's an inspiring message for everybody that's wearing a jersey. Yeah, absolutely agree. You know, there were some commentary, some rumors around LeBron James and others, Mookie Betts. There were some other professional athletes who had sort of at least on social media, professed an interest in buying. And this was mainly because people wanted Kelly Loeffler the hell out of there, right? Her leadership or lack thereof, um, what she expressed in terms of reticence to embrace the Black Lives Matter statements and activism around a very progressive, predominantly black league just wasn't a fit. And uh, Renee Montgomery herself reached out and said, Kelly, I want to talk to you. Like, what? I've been in your house. I've been around you when you when I was playing for this team and you were a co-owner and I never heard any of this. Like let's get together and see where you actually land on this stuff and never heard back. Like that there wasn't a conversation to be had there. And so all those folks that wanted to come in and help unseat Leffler, um some of them aren't able to fits and that's because you can't be a player in the NBA and simultaneously be an owner in the WNBA. A Ramona Shelburne enlightened me on this was mainly because of conflicts in terms of like salaries and where money is allotted. Um, but Dwight Howard did put in some interest into it despite his involvement. So for it to end up being Renee Montgomery, if you're let down by it not being LeBron, this is a fantastic person for the league to embrace and to start maybe modeling some ownership dreams for other players when they retire. Uh, here's what she said in the teleconference today about you know her role in, in helping shatter some new ceilings. Last year started the ball rolling as far as people really recognizing that the women of the WNBA are not just great at basketball, which they are, but also they're great at being advocates and they have things to say. And so it's, it's beautiful when the community embraces it. And we want to just kind of continue to, to add fuel to that and, and be, you know, and not to mention the women of the WNBA are business women that have degrees. And so they are very capable of speaking about things. And so just to see the community already show their support and be behind us. You know, it was led by a Gino Ariema for me, and, and that's exciting. Love it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance with insurance for cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and commercial vehicles at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and progressive.com. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, and Sarah, to the point that it's being noticed. I mean, I think this, this stood out to me, and, and we haven't talked a lot about it on this show, but for anyone that didn't see the news, 
Mark Davis is the owner of My Beloved Raiders, and uh, he obviously is now the owner of the Las Vegas Aces. He went out and uh, and bought that team. But in his quote, in his press conference talking about it, there's an article on ESPN.com. His quote, I believe the WNBA flipped the Senate in Georgia by using the vote as the using the vote as their weapon rather than anger or anything else. There's so much to learn from how they did that. I'm interested to see how the synergy between the Aces and Raiders will grow. I think that they can have a big part of bringing them together. I, I say that because to me what this is saying is that the voice, the activism, all the things that matter to WNBA players and now to owners alike – reflects and is part of what people are seeing as a reason to want to be around the brand and around the company and around what they're building there for a new owner to come in and say, Hey, I believe that this is the power that the women have in this league. I think it says something about sort of what's been created. And when you now see that empowerment grow to the level that a player is able to step into this role and take that next step, I just think it, it all of this takes the WNBA to the next step. And so often with leagues, it's about the relationship between owners and players. What better way to make sure that that continues to grow the right way than by having players represented as owners? I mean, it makes sense on every possible business level. And it makes sense across other sports, too. Diversity at the highest levels are just, it's just good business, right? A lot of people sometimes look at investment in women's sports as a charitable work or as investment in in a cause instead of good, solid financial decision making, which it is now as these leagues are growing. I also always say you can't give your son $5 and your daughter a dollar and then 10 years from now ask why the son's business is bigger. We need people with deep pockets the likes of which, you know, uh, someone who owns in the NFL would have to, to to invest in these sports as well and give them publicity and time and energy and money and see how they can thrive. Having someone like Renee in those meetings who knows uh, this sport and this league better than anybody is so great. You mentioned power a number of times. And Monica McNutt today on Around the Horn when we talked about this, ESPN basketball analyst for us, said this is the perfect example of stepping into your power. Man, no one is better than Renee to have this opportunity. She has really built a a whole brand, aside from being a basketball player, um, over the course of the summer because she's curious genuinely. She's one of the most genuine people in the league. It could not have happened during a better month in terms of February. Black history right here in front of us. But what I will say um, about Renee is, she loved playing for that Atlanta Dream Squad, and she loved her teammates. Even though she wasn't there last year, she was in constant communication with them. The amount of work that went into the campaign, you got to think about the entire arc of this story, from the vote Warnock tease to the conversations that were never actually had with Kelly Loeffler to the point that we're in now. Talk about owning and stepping into your power. This is a tremendous example. And I think it speaks to what Renee herself said, which is WNBA players are not just ballers. And we talk about this a lot in women's sports. Almost all professional women's athletes at, you know, NWSL, WNBA, et cetera, level usually graduate college, have a degree and have to think outside of sports for what they're going to do as careers because the money that they make isn't the same as what you're guaranteed if you become an NBA star. And so so many of them are so proactive in the causes that they care about. And that's why you could see them literally flip the Senate with their work. That's why you could see them looking away at Leffler was trying to use the publicity from fighting with them as a campaign push. And they stepped back and said, no, 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 no. We don't want to engage this way. Let's be smart about how we react to this. And it was all about investing in the candidate opposing her and helping him win the women in this league. Man, it's incredible to see when they're given a little bit of a platform and a little bit of a spotlight for us to realize the actual power they have. And Renee is just a perfect example of that. Quickly, too, I'll say, Sarah, there's an element here where this team went from being one that so many players were going to shy away from and not Mm want to play for as free agents 
to one that, man, if you have the opportunity to play with somebody that you respect, that you know played the game, if you have the opportunity to go play on that franchise, it makes them a better free agent destination to a lot of players. So uh, this is just a brilliant move all across the board. And I'm hyped for it because, as as silly as it might sound, there's a lot of places that women and people of color have not been invited to the table before. And if some of these pushes make people dream bigger of being owners or being executives in places they never imagined before, uh, they could set themselves on that path. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah still Spain, a Vegas Jason Aces Fitz. fan, though. I'm just saying. Still a right. Vegas Aces right. I mean, fan. But, you know. Listen, I'm still Chicago Sky all day and and Seattle Storm for my girl Sue Bird and the Washington Mystics for Elena Deladon. Oh, so you can't have that many I, I, I got to figure out where to fit them in. Uh, coming up, Kyrie pushing for Kobe to be the NBA logo and one team looking around and trying to figure out who's going to coach them. It's coming up next, Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Sarah, let's get to some straight talk. Brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And actually, I'm just going to say, I mean, I know it's a Friday, and you're looking forward to post-show maybe having a glass of wine. But if you weren't going to do that, I'm pretty sure if you wanted to, you could go coach the Raptors tonight. Like, I think any of us at this point could go in and just say, hey, we'll fill in. Like, if there's ever been a night that they could auction off a fan experience, maybe tonight is the night for anyone that hasn't seen, uh, due to COVID-19 at this point, the Raptors are without basically their entire coaching staff. Five members of the coaching staff, plus Nick Nurse, head coach, are all out. Pascal Siakam is going to miss the game due to COVID protocol. So this is one of those rare times where it feels like the trickle-down effect for this is so, so big that I look at it and say, man. Somehow yeah. <laughs> still up by a couple points with about nine to go in the second. They're still leading. It's the Rockets. Uh, they're still leading the Rockets 44-38 as far as I can see. Well, I appreciate you showing up here and not going to coach them for the night. But uh, Yeah, it they is, did call. You know, they did call. Well. Um, I told them I, I only run a box and one on, on okay. defense. And uh, okay. most of the time I just feed the post, heavy feed into the post. Being, being, a, being a center power forward myself, I'm really I like I like to work the paint fits. Go hard. I feel like I feel like I'm the one born to be an NBA coach because I'll just clap repeatedly and be like, come on, guys, let's hustle. Let's hustle. Got to get out there. You know what we're going to do? We're going to outwork them for this quarter. That's what we're going to do. That I feel like every time they're mic'd up, all they're saying is that basic thing. It's like, hey, guys, we got to get out there and outwork them. Really? Like, you, you've been Pay playing this to long. Pay attention to details. Pay attention to details. Just now figuring these things out? Like, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. Uh, all kidding aside, though, the Raptors do find themselves uh, in the news a little bit as the rumor mill continues to circulate around the team and what they should do uh, coming into the trade deadline because let's be real the Raptors had this little window and they hoped that they could win uh, you know they could they could prove sustaining championship level play even uh, without uh, Kawhi but that's not necessarily the case and now they're going to have to make some tough decisions and that means that as a result things could get a little bit interesting in the east yeah this is a tough one for me because when you're floating around the name of Kyle Lowry a guy who is as much the face of this franchise as DeMar DeRozan or Chris Bosh or Vince Carter, right? This is this is a beloved dude, and there's two aspects to it. There's the emotional one, which is, are you really willing to say goodbye to this this guy who knows the team inside and out? Literally, Ramon uh, Shelburne during ATH today, when this news hit that they'd be without most of their coaching staff, was texting with Masai Ujiri saying, you know, who's coaching tonight, uh, the, the, the Raptors GM? And he said, I don't know, maybe me. And she said, probably Lowry. And he said, it doesn't matter who's technically coaching, it's going to be Lowry. Like, that's the guy. He knows it, the, the team inside and out, and that city loves him. So emotionally, 
if he's okay because you send him to Philly, which is his hometown, and you can make the fan base feel okay about the break, that's going to be important. But beyond that, it's where do you think you sit as a team? This is a team that was always on the verge of greatness and kept running into the brick wall that was LeBron James and the Cavs. LeBron leaves the East. They acquire Kawhi in a mercenary position. They go out and get the title that they want. And now they're dipping back to what they kind of were. Good team, really good team. Didn't start out well. Two and eight to start. So now they're now they're picking things up. But both last year and this year, good team that's not quite good enough to get over the hump against teams this year, like the Nets or the Sixers. So do you invest? Do you grab more talent? Or do you say, listen, we might need a full rebuild and we're going to get rid of Lowry when we can get a bunch of pieces, some expiring veteran contracts, some young assets, and then see if we remake ourselves in a different image. It's a tough, tough thing to decide, especially with a weird offseason and such a slow start. Well, and Kyle Lowry is going to be a free agent this upcoming summer, so they've got to make that decision on on whether or not they think he's going to want to stick around. And if he does, does it make him good enough? And I'm left to wonder how much the greatness now of Brooklyn also comes into this conversation because you're going to find a team like the 76ers may want to be more aggressive because it's the only shot they've got. And you're going to find a team like the Raptors that don't know that they could necessarily be aggressive enough to make up that ground. Do they become aggressive the opposite direction and say, okay, let's start a process now that really sets us up for three years from now. I mean, that's the the trickiest part of the NBA is that you've got to be able to figure out with your roster how to compete today where you truly are. You've got to be looking in the mirror honestly to figure out where you are so that you can then figure out where you're going for the next couple of years. So I don't think there's a necessarily an easy answer. I do think that if Lowry goes to the 76ers, at least it makes the East feel a little more interesting because right now Brooklyn seems to be running away with it. So I love the idea of bringing Lowry in and, and you know seeing what that could do for Philly. But at the same time, I think pressing reset for Toronto just feels it just feels like a punch because it seemed like immediately after the, the loss of Kawhi that Siakam's continual growth, mm-hmm. that they were really going to be able to continue to contend. And that was going to be a great story for a franchise that wanted to be able to ride that momentum longer. I just don't think they can at this point. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast on the ESPN app, iTunes, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, we mentioned the Nets, and obviously so much of the conversation now focused on their eight-game win streak, them seeming to figure things out on defense and being so locked in on offense, even without Kevin Durant, that they that they feel unstoppable at times. What we've always talked about as part of what might get in the way is, is not just the defense, but the personalities. They've been clicking. Kyrie Irving is talking about how much he's learning about leadership. He's talking about maybe figuring out the want to and and wanting to be there for a team that he had abandoned earlier in the season without a lot of explanation. He's also talking a lot about wanting Kobe Bryant to replace Jerry West as the NBA logo, saying, quote, we want to set a standard and precedent like this is excellence. Kobe Bryant logo. Yes, needs to happen. I don't care what anyone says. Put up a modified NBA logo in an Instagram post swapping in the figure of Kobe and saying, got to happen. I don't care what anyone says. Black Kings built the league. Uh, Vanessa Bryant chimed in, agreed with him, and there's a lot of people saying they're they're on board with this. I I 100% see why you'd want that. I, I think even Jerry West has, has weighed in and said he agrees. Um, the question is, are you doing this to honor someone in his greatness because he passed or because he's representative of the league? Because some would argue, you know, Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or LeBron, right, might be 
more deserving of that. Um, but if it's about an homage to someone gone too soon and what he represents to people in the league in part because of that, um, I think it's a decent argument. Well, that's some straight talk. Straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. Everybody knows, well, I, I shouldn't say that. Many people may remember last year uh, after the passing of Kobe, I had a hard time just keeping myself together uh, as a massive fan of his for many, many years, right? Uh, so I, I say with so much respect for you know what he meant to my life from a fan standpoint, I don't see why they would ever change the logo to Kobe when there had been more meaningful players to the NBA in modern culture. If the objective is to take it away from Jerry West and, and really honor somebody more recent, I, I think it's impossible not to look at Michael Jordan. And I'm not just saying that because I'm working with you, Sarah. It just <laughs> seems like that's the obvious, uh, the, the obvious person here, the person that will define some portion of basketball for the next three, four, five generations is Michael. So uh, to me, it seems clear. By the way, uh, check out the game Saturday. The Nets going to take on the Mavs. Obviously, all eyes on the Nets, but also Luka and the Mavs. Can they get things where they want it to be? We'll see if Luka can be in the zone. Get in the zone brought to you by AutoZone. Get in the zone, AutoZone. We'll keep breaking down everything tonight on Palooza that you need to know. Hey, keep it in the NBA. We'll get you some NBA talk from a guest that we love next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESP. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $750 on average. It's a Guestapalooza Fry. Yay! Show. Bringing on some of our favorite guests, getting some insight all across the sports landscape. We've been talking a little NBA, so we're going to do that now. The Goodyear Hotline with one of our favorites, ESPN NBA reporter Om Young Masuk. Om, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. We started the show off earlier tonight talking a little bit about the Jazz and the fact that they don't necessarily get as much love because they haven't done it in the playoffs. So you've seen them recently. Is this Jazz team capable of doing the impossible and actually making some noise in the playoffs in your mind? I don't know it's going to be that impossible to uh, make noise in the playoffs of the Utah Jazz team. They're really good, incredibly well-coached. It's just, you know what the thing is? It's like they're not one of the sexy teams in the NBA. So I think nationally they don't get as much love. But when you see this team play, they're very together. Um, they, they pass the ball. They score. They defend. They're so fundamentally sound. Rudy Gobert doesn't get a lot of credit for being as good as he is, not only in the offensive end, Defensively, he gets a lot of credit, but offensively, doesn't get as much credit. Donovan Mitchell, who I, you know, we've seen him explode at times, and even during this time when they've won 22 of their last 24 games, an incredible run. No matter what generation you're talking about, for a team to make that kind of run is exceptional. Um, Donovan Mitchell hasn't, I don't think, gone on like this super tear during that thing. It's really been more of like a team effort, and they tend to fly under the radar as amazing as it is. And listen, they've. They've gone in, they went into L.A., they beat the Clippers, they beat the Lakers. They're beating good teams. But, of course, even Donovan Mitchell knows that until they do it at come playoff time because of how last year ended when they blew a 3-1 series lead to the Denver Nuggets, um, they know that people aren't really going to believe in them. Um, the Lakers are a team that everybody believes in, even during this slide. Is it as simple as two of their best players being out, or are we actually seeing some weaknesses being exposed here? I, I think what you're seeing is a couple things. One, they're they're you know 
Anthony Davis is out. That's a huge piece to lose. And even prior to that, before Anthony Davis got hurt, he wasn't quite Anthony Davis that we saw in the NBA Finals because of the quick turnaround and injuries and things like that. Number two, yes, they they didn't have Dennis Schroeder, who they're getting back tonight. That's a big boost for them. But I think also they're trying to learn some new pieces like Schroeder, Montrez, Harrell. They have somewhat of a different team than last year. But, of course, everybody thinks this team should mesh as quickly as it did last year when they had all these new pieces. Thirdly, I think, you know, maybe the Lakers are, are a little bored. I mean, they won the championship. There was a quick turnaround. They know what they're capable of doing, especially once the playoffs come. I think these games that they had won leading up to this recent losing streak, um, you know, they kind of won them in a way where they kind of turned things on when they had to. And now without Anthony Davis, it's become a little more difficult. And it really, I think they know as well as anyone, it really doesn't matter what seed they are. They don't need to be a top three seed to get to where they want to be come playoff time and get to the NBA Finals. They know that. Especially in today's NBA and the pandemic, with a pandemic where there's no real home court advantage. There aren't other team, other fans there to really put that pressure on you to make you feel that home court advantage. So um, I, I would say those those three factors are right there right now. And, and look, the Lakers never want to go through a three- or four-game losing slide. Um, they did one last year, and then they turned it around. Um, I am not worried about the Lakers. I, I Maybe some other Laker fans who are greedy and they want every win possible, maybe they're worried. But I, if I were the Lakers, I'm not worried. It doesn't matter what seed they're going to be. As long as Anthony Davis and LeBron James are healthy, they should be fine. We're talking to Om Young, ESPN NBA reporter, and I mean everything you just said about the Lakers. I felt like it was in the bubble too; like they just seemed disinterested sometimes, and then they turned it on. They beat everybody. Maybe that's why we're not worried. But a, a year ago, Om, we were all obsessed with the Clippers, who now aren't even really part of a national conversation at this point. Like, has the ship sailed for some reason on the other team in LA? The radar—they're they're flying a little bit under the radar, and I think it's because, much like the Utah Jazz. Last, uh, you know, the, the, the way they finished in the bubble, blowing that 3-1 series lead to the Denver Nuggets, um, Paul George shooting off the side of the backboard, Kawhi not really showing up in that fourth quarter as well. Um, maybe people got a little fatigued from the Clippers. That The Clippers had all that talk last year, and then they fizzled out. And so this year, uh, listen, they made that change from Doc Rivers to Ty Lue. I think that also has something to do with it because D- Doc Rivers, you know, anything that came out of his mouth was so much news all the time. Everything he said was so impactful. Ty Lue, um, good coach, but he's also, he doesn't, the stuff he says doesn't really resonate the way it did with Doc Rivers. So I think they're a little less on the national scale right now, but quietly they're playing well. Now, last night they were blown out by Memphis and they're playing Memphis again today, um, but quietly they're building. They also know that until they do it in the playoffs, people aren't going to really believe what they do in the regular season. So they're just kind of sticking to their their own business, and so far I think they're playing pretty well. The one thing I would say they're not doing great in is defensively. Defensively, I think they're behind their offense, and a lot of people tend to think of the Clippers as this great defensive team because they have the great two-way players in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I think defensively they're a little behind. They'll eventually get that into the same page, and then come playoff time we'll see what they can do. But I, I do think they are looking like a team that could be better than they were last year. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We're talking to Om Young, Masuk, ESPN NBA reporter. Got any thoughts on last night's Wizards-Nuggets uh, game? It could be the last play. It could be the Wizards finally winning and being nearly a playoff team. What you got? Combination of both. Um, listen, the Denver Nuggets 
at one point at the end is a bizarre series where they look like they had four a four on one. Jamal Murray right. stops at the three point line. He thinks he doesn't have a shot. He then passes it off. Nobody cuts to the rim. It's one of these things where you're wondering, like, is this a product of today's generation of NBA where nobody cuts to the rim and everybody's <laughs> just looking to do the three-point shot because that's what the analytics say. But, of course, you know, the eye test, you have to go to the rim. You can win. And so that was a little bit of a mistake. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have the, the Wizards who now all of a sudden, after a, I think it was like a 4-12 and start, they've won, they now won, like, I think six of their last eight games or seven games. And starting to look like the team that they were supposed to be. And remember, this Wizards team had a COVID outbreak as bad as anybody in the NBA for about a nine-day stretch. Scott Brooks only saw his players through the glass of his car going out of the parking lot exit as they were all getting COVID tested. That team was not together for a long time. For them to be able to kind of turn it around and not only be two and a half games, three games out of a playoff spot in the Eastern Conference is quite amazing. Um, so, And those two teams, when they play, their, their games have gone down right down to the buzzer and had crazy drama at the end. But I think the Denver Nuggets, I, I, don't, I know I sound like a broken record because we talked about this with the Utah Jazz and the L.A. Clippers. The Nuggets um, know that when they get to the playoffs, they start to play their best basketball. But during the regular season, for some reason, they're very inconsistent. And so they kind of look forward to getting toward the playoffs and showing what they can do. But in an also way, that also kind of hurts them because they've been so up and down in this regular season and they cannot depend on – once we get to the playoffs, we're going to turn it on. They need to play a little bit better than that because right now they're eighth in the Western Conference. All right, real quick, um, you've given all these compelling cases for all of these teams. If I had to bet Sarah's house, knowing that if I lose, she would remind Whoa, me every day that I minute. lost her house. If I had to bet Sarah's house on anybody other than Lakers-Nets, should I? I mean, or, or is it just Lakers-Nets or the field? Uh, I, first of all, I would not put – Sarah's mansion on Lake Michigan up for bet anytime, okay? The I know views. she lives in a fat mansion uh, with a nice view, <laughs> <tennis> okay? courts. <laughs> I'm not putting my house up for it, so it's got to be her zone. Like, I'm just saying. Uh, I would say, if I had to put money on it, I like the Nets coming out. I think the Sixers are going to make some noise in the playoffs as well with Joe Embiid and Doc Rivers. Uh, but the Nets, they have a big three, unlike what we probably have ever seen offensively. Um, and then from the West, I mean, I hate to sound like last year, but I still think we're going to see Clippers-Lakers um, at some point in the Western Conference Finals. And then it's going to come down to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George versus LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And if they have healthy Anthony Davis, how can you bet against the Lakers making it back to the Finals? That's it. I'm betting Sarah's house on it. Oh, we appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe, brother. All right, thanks, guys. The trophy room. <laughs> the wine yeah, well, cellar. Well, you know, uh, the wine cellar. Oh, yeah. No, I'm putting that. That's a side. I'm doing a parlay for the wine cellar. It's just the a little library. side bet or something. All right. Uh, you know, the definitely. The, the concept of me betting Sarah's house, she would swipe down on. We'll swipe a bunch on a bunch of different topics. Coming up, Sports <laughs> Tinder, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Friday! I am roughly nine minutes from a cocktail. Hope you guys are having a good night. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Notice I didn't tell you whether I was eight minutes away from a cocktail or eight minutes into one. You can figure it out for yourself. We are brought to you by Wendy's, proud sponsor of the 2021 John R. Wooden Men's and Women's Player of the Year. And like I said, it's Friday! 
That's right, and on Fridays, we like to do a little sports tinder. We we know you're sitting at home, swiping left, swiping right, making bad decisions, looking for some strange. Shouldn't be doing that in a pandemic, folks. Be safe, all right? Keep it over Zoom. Keep it keep it over FaceTime. Do what you got to do. Oh, that's even whatever weirder. With whatever technology <laughs> you need is all I'm saying, is what I'm telling you. Oh, uh, but when we do our sports <laughs> tinder, we ask you questions, sometimes sports-related, sometimes not. And then we ask a question about it, and we swipe up if we agree. We swipe right if we... We swipe up if we really agree. We swipe right if we agree, left if we disagree. And if we swipe down, we hate it. So let's get into sports tinder. Sports Tinder. Oh, yeah. It feels good. Sensual. Feels Just really sensual. Good. Uh, <laughs> Naomi Osaka <laughs> has won again. Uh, just dominance. Uh, unbelievable dominance. And she beat Jennifer Brady and tried to, I think, give her a shout out at the end. And here's how it went. Firstly, um, I want to come. Do you like to be called Jenny or Jennifer? Jenny. Okay. Firstly, I want to congrat Jennifer. Wow. Okay, Fitz, question for you. Was this really an accident? Because Naomi said it was. Oh, I'm going to... That's where I pause in the... Swipe left. There we go. See? There we go. I'm going to swipe left on it. No, I think that there's a, like, hidden killer instinct in Naomi. Like, we get behind closed (laughs) doors, and all of a sudden, she goes, gotcha. So, you know, I think think she was just, uh, she was sending a subtle message. There we go. Can you do that again? Gotcha. Wow. I'm going to swipe up super like, yeah, this was absolutely an accident. Nobody that sounds like that has a mean bone in their body. I mean, it would have to be a real long con for her to sound that sweet for her entire life solely to make sure that we didn't sniff out that she's truly evil to the core. Uh, uh, you got to watch more cartoons because it that's feels like true. that's the cartoon that method on here. True. Uh, all right. Moving on, man, a man faked his kidnapping to get out of work. An Arizona man included a dramatic backstory about cash hidden in the desert. He was found in the uh, in, in the middle of nowhere, roughed up and helpless, bound and gagged. And it turns out all of it was completely fake. He just didn't want to go to work for a month. So Fitz, good idea? Oh yeah, I'm going to... Swipe up, super like... Oh, yeah. I love the idea of faking a kidnapping. You just got to be really careful. You got to plan it better. But, man, you can like you can just hang out for a month, and then when you come back, everybody's going to give you like free casseroles and stuff because they feel bad for you, so you eat free for like a month after that. Like, There's some real return here as long as you make sure you cover your bases better. You get out of work, and you get free casseroles. What could be better? Was well, this a good idea? I'm going to swipe down. I hate it. Fitz, you know why we know the story of this guy faking his kidnapping to get out of work? It's because he got caught, okay? And that's probably what's going to happen if you go through an elaborate scheme to get out of work for a month. People actually look into this. In fact, someone I know very well used to be one of those private investigators for workers' comp where he would literally, like, go hide behind trees and try to see if someone who was faking an injury was actually fine. And then if they were out in their front yard, like, cutting wood and stuff but claimed they couldn't go to work because of a soldier injury, he would snitch on them but it was oh, his wow. job so it wasn't snitching but he had people like come after him when they spotted him with guns and stuff it's pretty high risk anyway bad idea jeans is what i'm saying about that one moving on we're doing sports tinder here on spain and fits Giannis antetokounmpo uh great dude by all accounts and just just looking like a, a poor baby injured lamb when he found out 
that Matt Velasquez left the beat. Here's what it sounded like. But I got a question. Uh, while I was asking uh, your question, I thought about what is Matt Velasquez? What is he? He's got a new job, man. He's he got a new job? Yeah, yeah. He left us? Yeah, his, uh, his wife is uh, going to be a doctor, so he was supporting her. Wow, wow, I can't believe it. So he, in the Indianapolis, so he left us without saying anything? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I mean, he said something to me. I don't know if he said anything to you. Damn, Matt. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought we were closer than that. I'm sure he's heartbroken. Yeah. Does this make you like Giannis even more, Fit? Oh, I'm going to... Swipe up. Super like. I mean, everything about this is just so well handled by Giannis, and he's one of the easiest guys to root for in the NBA and all the sports. It only cements it for me. I'm going to... Swipe up. Super like. Yeah. Duh. I mean, some of these guys, I I bet you wonder if they even know who you are. And here he is looking around the Zoom, desperately searching to match eyes with Matt Velasquez, and then he realizes he's gone. Gone forever. Heartbroken. Uh, Good dude. Love to see it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio. We're doing a little sports Tinder on a fry, yay. I don't know if you guys saw this story about LeBron James and Zlatan. And Zlatan, of course, famous uh, soccer player, came to play in the States, took out a full-page ad that said, you're welcome (laughs) to the people of L.A. when he came to town to play. He's known for his mouth. He's known for uh, quotable statements. Uh, unfortunately, now one of those statements is to say, quote, LeBron is LeBron is phenomenal at what he's doing, but I don't like when people have some kind of status. They go and do politics at the same time. Do what you're good at. Do the category you do. I play football because I'm the best at playing football. I don't do politics. If I want to be a political political politician, I would do politics. So he goes on and on and on. Uh, Fitz, I'm going to go first on this one. I feel like this is something we've talked about a lot with Kaepernick, with LeBron, with the WNBA players. Like, there's been so much conversation around whether we should separate social issues, which aren't inherently political, from athletes and their platforms. And so I'm going to have to swipe. Yeah. Wow. Wow. All right, Sarah, in fairness, while I appreciate your swipe, I think you've left a little bit out here. I think there's more to it. I, I'm going to chime in here. I'm going to go ahead and swipe. <laughs> That's moving on. Oh, we got multiple. I got multiple <laughs> fart noises out of it. Let's go. I appreciate what you added to the conversation, and I apologize. There were some things that I left out, and I think you really nailed it. <laughs> it's Spain and Fitz. Moving on. The pilot of an American Airlines flight headed to Phoenix reported a close encounter with an unidentified flying object, quote, that almost looked like a cruise missile in the last few weeks. According to a man who runs Deep Black Horizon blog, he recorded scanner traffic from the airline's plane, and it was flight 2292, and it was in the northeast corner of New Mexico on February 22nd, and the pilot radioed, do you have any targets up here? We just had something go right over the top of us. I hate to say this, but it looked like a long cylindrical object that almost looked like a cruise missile type thing moving really fast right over the top of us. They said no, no significant military aircraft presence. And now they're saying it was an unidentified flying object. When asked to elaborate, American Airlines said, talk to the FBI. This is not the first time a pilot, commercial or military, has reported a UFO encounter. Last April, the Pentagon released footage showing a UFO that had been released by a private company several months earlier. 
So Fitz, is now the right time to make friends with aliens? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to... Swipe left. No, see, I'm not going to make friends with aliens because here's the fatal flaw with aliens. They always seem to land in America. Like, if aliens are really that smart, shouldn't they land somewhere where there's a ton of area for them to set up camp like Egypt or something? So I don't need to make friends, friends with them because I feel like we can take them down. I feel like, isn't it possible that you mostly just only hear about the ones flying over America and that there's probably plenty in other places, too, and you're just no, not listening fine. to the Egyptian I mean, news of the night? Well, Maybe. that's fine. Then. I'm going to. Swipe right. <laughs> of course now's the time to make friends with the aliens. What do we have to lose? We're in a pandemic. Our country's falling apart. We don't even know if our government is for us anymore. The I can't be within invaded. six feet of somebody. Maybe like, they am I going to make what if a big-headed alien wear a mask? Fix? What if they have the COVID vaccine? One shot, boom, it's gone. I don't know. (laughs) It's Spade and Fitz. Enjoy your Friday. Thanks for listening. You're Friday. Freddie Fitzsimmons. uh, They've got a UFO, a guy with a COVID vaccine. Next. (laughs) 